Hello and welcome to What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton and I'm Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures and your host. Uh, joining me this week are Ruby Hinchliffe, our reporter at Fintech Futures. Hi, everyone. And James Herbert, founder and CEO at Financial Wellbeing Fintech Hasty. Hello, everyone. Uh, good to have you on, James. Uh, this week's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, earned wage access, financial health, and uh, the ways in which companies are, uh, how the ways companies are paying are changing and will change in the future. Um, first up, though, is our news in numbers segment. Uh, this is where we've gone out and found some news stories with interesting or eye-catching numbers and discuss them in a little bit more detail. Uh, usually our guest goes first, but I'm going to mix things up and go a bit crazy and ask uh, Ruby to go first with her news and numbers. So Ruby, take it away. Sure. Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, so I, I reported on this um, not not too long ago, um, and it's Curve going crowdfunding five months after their $95 million Series C investment, which was much awaited and um, happened a bit later than people anticipated. Um, and I guess my number is is five, five months. So that's the time in between this uh, Series C in January and this crowdfunding campaign uh, in May. Um, and I guess, I mean, there's, there's a few reasons why this crowdfund is happening. I, and, and, and it really depends on, on how, uh, cynical you are. Um, when we posted the news, um, I saw that Jazz Shah, who's a, a freelance fintech consultant, he retweeted it and he said, many crowdfunding campaigns are more about c- customer exposure rather than actual funding. Uh, it's a, a great idea to boost numbers and potentially get new customers from previously untapped segments. And as I'll, I'll mention in, in, a, in a minute, you know, Curve do need do need more customers by the sounds of, of kind of how their active customer rates and targets have gone. Um, but I do think that this is probably a, quite an optimistic view, um, you know, thinking that this crowdfunding is just happening um, to get more exposure and to to get more customers involved and get them you know a stake in the in the company because I mean if you look at Curve's accounts which they um, they released around the same time as their uh, Series C in January um, you know their operating losses quadrupled from six point five million pounds in twenty eighteen to twenty eight. 8.5 million pounds between November 2018 and December 2019. They're not directly comparable because one figure covers one or two more months than the other, but you can see anyway how much the losses have have climbed. Um, and you know, cost of sale has gone up massively. Um, again, not really a surprise um, with the sort of way they're growing or trying to grow. Um, so that went up from 2.2. Uh, million pounds to eight million pounds. Um, and so I guess I, I think that um, I'm, I'm just skeptical as to, you know, not just Curve, other companies are doing it too in the startup space is to jumping between institutional investment and crowdfunding campaigns. I mean, a lot of reports on the crowdfunding campaign didn't really go into Curve's uh, finances at all. They just highlighted the fact that, oh, its last crowdfunded in 2019 raised £4 million pounds in 42 minutes, which is obviously very impressive. And, and since then, its valuation has tripled. Um, Curve's valuation to, to, to uh, I don't know what its valuation is now, actually, but it is claiming that it's doing £2.6 billion pounds in transactions now compared to £1 billion in transactions in 2019. Um, 
so I guess I'm just skeptical. I mean, I was having a conversation with a, a fintech CEO uh, yesterday even, and, and he was like, does anyone even use, like, how do you use Curve to just, just sit there? You know, it, there's not a huge amount of functionality that is going to be driving engagement still. I know that they're, they're going to unveil a credit uh, product a bit later this year, which is partly what the crowdfunding campaign will go towards. Um but surely, you know, raising 95 million should have been enough in, in January for that. Um, but I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear you got your guys' thoughts on this. Um, I mean, Alex, like, what do you think about this? Uh, I mean, ostensibly, you know, you're, you're looking at a uh, some very positive news, some very positive numbers. Um there's, uh, you know, the, the 72.5 from early this year, the 2 million customers, the 2.6 billion of processing, uh, the hiring of 100 or more staff. Um, and uh, to that point, I mean, I, I, I'm a naturally very boring person, uh, as anyone who's listened to this podcast might be able to attest to. Um, but I, I've never really been attracted by the proposition of Curve, but that's because I only ever really use two cards. I have seen some people say that they they like to use it. Those who have, you know, a glut of uh, challenger bank cards or credit cards, even loyalty cards that they want to switch between on, on the fly. Um, and like you mentioned, the crowdfunding thing is an interesting aspect. And you said there that, uh, you know, there's been mutterings that it's uh, a way of getting its name back in the headlines after a big raise, which, you know, uh, to give them their due, uh, we wrote a story on it and now we're talking about it on the podcast. So it's worked. Um, but I think it, uh, it sort of demonstrates that, that, you know, it's, a, it's extremely highly competitive space, especially when you're trying to scale up quickly, uh, you, these rounds coming thick and fast, trying to, you know, really offset, uh, the, the the cost that can come with 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 being a, a, new, a newish company and trying to really take that next step up to the next level, which I'm sure perhaps James is something you you can attest to as well. What what's your take on on the curve story? I read this as a couple of things really. I think the most biggest part of it is probably the fact that the chasing for user engagement. Um, if they've got loyal customers, they're likely to be more loyal if they are invested and their usage can further drive the numbers. So. A lot of these crowdfunding raises by the consumer brands and the we've seen it with various challenger banks or neo banks or whatever you want to call them, um, to do to do exactly that, to drive awareness as a sort of marketing campaign and try and get greater engagement with their their user base. I think that's probably one of the, the main things. I wonder whether, uh, and I don't know, but it would kind of make sense if they're trying to get into the US, if there's an element where they could actually raise from um, US crowdfunding sites and try and get uh, use that to, to drive more awareness and, and you know some users within within the US that was obviously part of what they'd planned to um, use the proceeds of the last round for uh, and then I, I'd imagine also just the the curve credit I believe that they are going to be offering uh, rolling out with that a buy now pay later type option as well that it's just more costly um, so if you put all those things together combined with the fact that if the money's there I mean we've even seen Amazon just do those enormous um, talking of numbers, those enormous uh, raises, debt raise on the closest that anyone's ever got to US government debt, uh, not because they need the cash, but just because money's cheap. So there's also a good sense that if the money's available and they can get it, you know, we've been living in a fairly um, different time now that take money where you've got it and be secure. So I think if you put all those things together, I can see the, the appeal for, for Curve to do so. 
Excellent. Yeah. And that, I mean, you, uh, you mentioned Amazon there, um, which sort of brings us quite neatly around to, to your, uh, your news numbers there when it comes to, you know, the, the GAFA companies. So do you want to uh, talk about your, your news story, James? Absolutely. I actually, the, the link was an unintentional, um, <laughs> purely luck. Um, yeah. So, the big number here, I guess, was the frightening 127-page document that uh, the French watchdog released. Now, I didn't—I admit I didn't read all 127 pages of the article on it, but there's other big numbers here as well with regards to the valuations of the, you know, huge tech businesses that uh, that are launching and moving into into banking. Um, you know, a lot of the tech companies effectively want to become banks, and a lot of the banks want to become tech companies. We saw a number of years ago now that that fantastic Apple launch, as they always do, when they launch the Apple card, and effectively that's a you know, it's a Goldman credit card with the Apple interface, and the fact that the tech companies obviously have such a hold on on the user on the interface that they've got a really interesting place to go um, and can you know roll out a wider range of services. Uh, we've seen the super apps, you know, the ants and the grabs and what have you, and trying to pull all that together. But then if you look at how the Chinese regulator has, uh, to some extent, they torpedoed the, the ant float and trying to reduce their power. And the central banks and the regulators are certainly very wary of the power that you know these huge tech companies, both in the East and the West, have. Um, with, you know, obviously, they've got the motivation to try and limit those as well, as more of them are trying to roll out their own digital currencies. We obviously, the ECB being one, um, the Chinese are being others, and other other central banks trying to follow suit. So, yeah, there's big big numbers, huge opportunity. It's so much is now centered around the the user interface and making things work seamlessly for for those people. Um, and that hold that they have is uh, has got very considerable um, benefits, but also very considerable risks with tech companies potentially coming just far too powerful and you know too big to fail, and we don't want to see another credit crisis. Yeah, I think you make some really good points there, James. And you know, um, when I was re- reporting on this um, announcement by the French regulator, it was really interesting to look at some of the specific points they made. I mean, it's no surprise that they're they're talking out about this. Um, you know, you've got the European Commission, um, you know, led by Margaret Vestager, who's been doing separate investigations into Apple, and then you've also got um, the European Central Bank, uh, which has also been talking about. Uh, big tech and how it's a threat and how you know Europe needs to react. Um, but one of the things I thought was really interesting in the report was the the point of contention around branded smartphones like Apple, um, you know, because they're designed to to only support their own payments wallets um, for for contactless transactions. Um, I mean, and that's something Apple's already being investigated for by the European Commission. But that's something that uh, the Bank of France has also uh, highlighted as an, as an issue. And and when you think about it, it is a huge issue because how in the world are other sort of fintech wallets uh, supposed to compete uh, when, you know, you've got one of the largest uh, phone manufacturers uh, in the world, um, you know, huge, huge amount of adoption kind of immediately slicing people out of the market. Um, you know, it is a big, big issue for competition. Um, and it's interesting to see that, that Margaret Vestager 
uh, the same week that this this news came out from the Bank of France, um, you know, they were also looking into the Apple Store and the competition concerns around that. Uh, and, it, and its preliminary conclusion was that Apple was in breach of EU competition law. Um, and a- Apple Music competes with other music streaming services, but the Apple charges high commission fees uh, on rivals in the App Store. Uh, and then forbids them to inform of alternative subscription options. Um, and so their, their conclusion was, well, consumers are, are losing out. So I think it's exciting that they've already kind of come up with a preliminary conclusion for the Apple Store. So it'd be interesting what happens to Apple Pay and, and some of the, the sort of strands of Apple that are, you know, directly now competing with these big banks and, and now generating these concerns at, at central banks like the one in France. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, I- I feel like uh, I'm showing my my age here, perhaps, but I remember that I, pretty, I think essentially when Apple Pay and, and Google Pay first uh, launched on phones and smartphones, I remember talking to, um, I think it was uh, a, a, a cash and cards company that shall remain unknown, um, unnamed rather, about uh, Stockholm Syndrome. And essentially that the banks had in going for convenience, because of course, both of these solutions, extremely convenient, uh, had locked themselves out of an ecosystem and that people no longer, uh, they no longer pay with, uh, you know, they don't pay. If I go, if I go to get on the tube, uh, I don't pay um, with uh, First Direct or to my mind, I pay without Android Pay or, you know, Google Pay. Uh, and the same with people who pay with Apple Pay. Like, no, I'm not paying with Lloyd's, I'm paying with Apple. I'm not paying with Chase, I'm paying with Apple, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, you know, that the banks lost lost the, you know, the, the, they had a false start. Um, the, the Apple and Google, off they went, like you say, in Bolt, while the banks were sort of still milling around and so on. Yeah, that seems all right, we'll let them do that. Um, and 127 pages is, uh, it's an impressive paper. Um, perhaps a little bit too late. I mean, if you're going to warn the financial services industry about the potential of the, the GAFA companies, then perhaps you should have done it five years ago. Um, I mean, really at this point, there's not, I, from my perspective, I don't think there's a lot that financial institutions can do to step up to the plate and, and really muscle in without spending huge sums of money uh, right now. And I think, to be honest, it's up to the regulators. And we know that, you know, they are they are doing investigations. Commission's looking at Apple Pay and you know, Apple's famous closed ecosystem that everyone moans about, but no one's actually doing anything about, which gives it a huge corner of the market. But I think that we need to see a lot more movement from the regulators when it comes to this, instead of sort of just pinning it on the financial institutions who are struggling in already, well, struggling is a strong word, but they are doing a lot right now to, to reduce costs and pivot to a digital model, which is, you know, uh, everyone loves that term accelerated since uh, COVID-19. Um, so yeah, I mean, in fact, that I've, I've just like James, I've, I've unwittingly segued myself into my own story. Um, but uh, my, my news and numbers uh, this week is, uh, 1 billion euros, which is uh, the amount of money uh, that HSBC is paying uh, New York-based private equity firm Cerberus um, for HSBC's loss-making French branches and operations. Uh, the deal includes 230 agencies, 4,000 French employees. Um, we've known about the sale since February, uh, but the details have you know have really been have been officially announced until a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some big numbers, even still more. The, there's the one billion in the sale, obviously, but the the French ops were losing HSBC around 500 million euros 
per half per half a year. Uh, and 20 years ago, I bought it for bought the, the whole ops for 6.6 billion, hoping to sell it at a profit. Um, obviously, that's not gone quite so well. Um, Perhaps slightly ironically, this sale is part of a cost-saving exercise, and now it's it's having to pay to get rid of them. After uh, originally the price was was cutthroat, and then some companies offered um, a somewhat, uh, I guess, sarcastic one euro to pay for it. But now HSBC is paying uh, this private equity firm. Um, yeah, it's uh, con- but you know, there's some method to that madness there when you consider it's losing half a billion a year. Um, so you might as well rip off the the plaster instead of trying to pull it off slowly. But I mean, it's pretty eye watering figures there from from the world's one of the world's largest lenders uh, and a continuation of of the downsizing which is occurring across the financial services industry, especially among banks. So as opposed to it being a microcosm, I suppose is this like a is this a macrocosm of something that's hitting you know every single institution out there from from the small credit union to to the global bank. Um, this is another Ruby story, by the way. So, congratulations, Ruby, on on all three stories, including including your reporting. So, uh, what's your take on it? Yeah, thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a funny one. This one, um, I've been following it closely um, because a, a friend of mine, Arcady Lapiro, he's been following it very closely um, and uh, sort of notifying me. We've been notifying each other on the updates because the sale has been you know, a point of contention for, for a long time, as you said, and the, the, the figure kept changing and the, the buyers kept changing. Um, but I think it's it's not surprising, is it, right? Because HSBC, their plan at the moment is just, just invest in Asia because that's where they're making a huge majority of the money. Um, you know, Europe is is where they're, they're losing. I think, um, was it in, in 2020, I think HSB logged a $4.2 billion loss in Europe. Um, you know, and obviously a big part of, of, of losses in 2021 is going to come from this 1 billion sale of its, of its French branches. Um, whilst in, you know, the Asia, Asia specific region, the bank, um, the Asian business made 12, $12.8 billion in, in profit, um, which very much helped to offset the, the losses it, it made in Europe. So, uh, it's no surprise that, that, like the bank is is kind of you know um, minimizing its its footprint in in Europe, um, and and yeah, as a contrast, it's it's investing huge amounts in in Asia Pacific. It's going to pump six billion dollars into the region over the next five years, which it announced in February. Uh, it's already on track to hire one thousand uh, Asian wealth management uh, employees um, by the end of this year, and it will go on to to hire a few more thousand over the next few years. Um, so I think that for HSBC, the plan of expansion investment is wealth management in Asia. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's no surprise. It's trying to sort of wrap up these operations that are just losing it money uh, and, ta- and just taking away from, from the profits, the very healthy profits it's making over, over in Asia. Uh, for, for me, I think the, the, the most amazing thing here is just the sums of money involved. I mean, such huge losses, um, paying so much money to offload something. But also the fact that the um, you know, Cerberus believe that there's sufficient value in there that they can turn it around, or is there an ulterior motive that they've got a better way of trying to utilize the one billion recap rather than actually turn it around? I don't know. But the yeah, just the sums of money and the fact that you can go on this long making and this type of losses, and obviously with the uh, pandemic of increasing the amount of time people are actually going to spend 
banking on their mobiles rather than in branch uh, will have exacerbated the problem still further. Here we are in part two of the podcast. This is our more interview style section where we focus the discussion into a specific industry topic or sector. Uh, We're going to dive into the main topic in just a moment. But first, I'm going to give James a second to give us a bit more information about Hasty, um, what's been going on with the company lately and uh, any big news. So take it away, James. Thank you, Alex. Well, um, for those of you who don't know what Hasty is, obviously it's a uh, earned wage access. What we do is we uh, enable people to control their finances better by receiving the money they've earned on demand, choosing when to do it. Now, it's been an interesting year. Last year, as you can imagine, with different sort of work patterns, with a huge amount of furloughing, with so many different things affecting the workforce and the huge impact the pandemic had over you know so many people. Uh, we saw a big polarization of people's financial health and financial stability with some you know, really ben- almost benefiting uh, those that, you know, were, were able to increase savings. We've seen that, you know, across the globe that savings have increased, but actually that was uh, roughly half the workforce, whereas the other half of the workforce have been very, you know, badly affected as a result and actually in more precarious financial situation. And one thing we have seen over that period is a big education and awareness um, of earned wage access, more earnings on demand, depending on what you want to call it, uh, as an industry, uh, and obviously, you know, as Hasty, we've we've been sort of driving that and benefiting from it. So that's been been great news. But we've had a busy year, you know, rolling out with uh, more of the NHS trusts, with more employers, um, you know, working to try and help those that that need it most, give them access to to their earnings when they need it, providing liquidity. Uh, as well as that, we also started. Um, I guess a, a consolidation wave. We we bought a uh, acquired a Spanish business, a company called Tips, and have been integrating that. That closed at the end of last year, and have been working really hard this year to to integrate our teams, our technology, and our processes. And yeah, I'm pleased to say it's been going really well. And they're a great team. We're loving working with it, working together, and uh, making real progress. Excellent. That's good. That's great to hear. But uh, I mean, I want to pick up on that on that on that Tips thing as well, the acquisition, because. Earned wage access is is, is becoming a, a larger and larger phenomenon, uh, and it's especially something that's quite a, a hot talking point in the US and North America. Um, but it's not necessarily something I hear a lot of people talking about in Europe. Uh, and you just mentioned that you acquired a Spanish um, a, a Spanish financial well being firm. So maybe perhaps you could you could uh, educate me as to maybe the fact I'm looking in the wrong place. But uh, what, is there a comparison there? Is it is it less well known in Europe? It's certainly less well known in Europe. Yeah, uh, that's a very fair statement. However, Europe is starting to catch up, and one of our partners, Visa, um, are you know doing a lot of work in this space and are very positive about the the catch up, if you like, that we are going to see in Europe to the US over the coming months and years. Uh, we're certainly seeing an, a, an acceleration in awareness, but just the sort of the different cultures and different regulation and um, appetite you see across Europe makes it just a, 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 a sort of a slower, more um, staged, more ad hoc um, evolution within within Europe compared to the US. So the US were, you know, they started first. Uh, they have a, a number of larger organizations that are you know, gaining real traction, um, but also the sort of a, 
a culture there where what's mine is mine. Um, uh, they're already on, you know, generally a, a two-week cycle. Uh, there is sort of problems are just bigger and badder in in the US. Everything is that just a bit bigger, and and they were just earlier about it. But I think people are more more open about talking about their money uh, and more confident in in saying that's mine. Why wait? Whereas in in the UK and in in Europe, I think you know I say Europe different cultures it, it, from one to the other. But you know if we look particularly at the UK, uh, there's very much the British stiff upper lip. People don't like talking about their finances. People certainly don't like to talk about financial difficulty. And that's meant that less awareness of the problem. And it's only now that we are seeing a, a greater movement, a greater awareness of the problem there of people needing liquidity, people having, you know, people needing alternatives to, you know, the predatory payday loans and high cost lenders so that they can better manage their finances. Um, Financial financial stress is the single biggest cause of poor mental health, and obviously over the last few years um, and, and, and more. But we're we're seeing a much greater awareness of society of the impact of poor mental health, um, what that has on on the individual, and obviously by affecting individuals, the the impact it has on on their work, and therefore uh, by default the the organisations they work for. Uh, so it's, it's an awareness thing, and, and we're definitely seeing a a really big movement of better awareness, better education. People are definitely understanding it more, you know, much more rarely now are we having to, are we being sort of, oh, why are you not a Wonga? Or we're, we're anything but a Wonga. Um, you know, we're here to put, put the, uh, put the payday lenders to bed. Uh, we don't, you know, we, we, we want to close that industry down, but just because one has disappeared doesn't mean suddenly everyone has, uh, you know, perfect liquidity. Uh, there is a liquidity crisis that is causing considerable financial stress and, you know, the awareness of that and then having a, a, a solution and an awareness of solutions to fix that is, is crucial. Okay, great. And, and I think that, you know, talking about liquidity problems and people's uh, financial instability, I mean, the, we're, we're never going to stop talking about the pandemic and the things that it has accelerated. But how much more important has, has access to finance become following, you know, the, the changes that have been brought about by COVID-19? Well, we, we found we did, we released a, a study at the back end second half of last year, looking exactly into to the impact that COVID nineteen has had on you know on the workforce, uh, a sort of an extension of our annual workplace well being study. Uh, and as I mentioned, it, it's seen a real polarization. We've actually seen the number of people using high cost credit coming down. Uh, in fact, the number of people financially stressed has come down. But what we have seen is that those who were financially stressed have become increasingly so. Um, it's you know the more and more people are are struggling um, with fewer options. The the poverty premium is is being exacerbated. They have fewer places to turn. So I mean, we saw forty one percent of people uh, surveyed took on more debt through the pandemic, and that number was even higher within the young. So seventy nine percent of the eighteen twenty four year olds were taking on more debt. You know, roughly a third of people sacrificing essential pur- purchases. Now, these these are big problems and having massive impacts on on people's lives and and their ability to you know to work and to supply their families and simply get by. There are lots of companies out there that may be interested in in installing and deploying a system that enables them to you know pass out uh, the wages, give people access to, to money throughout the month. Um, how have you seen sort of hangups? technologically about it? Because uh, if it's something that people don't talk about, I imagine it's something that companies don't really think about when it comes to implementing technologically. Is it is it an easy process and how, how do they go about it? For organizations, it's 
Yeah, ultimately, it's a pretty easy process. It's much easier than people think. You know, we we work with small businesses, but also enterprise, and enterprise generally are terrified about putting uh, new systems and processes in. Uh, the most important thing, actually, we found is working with people's existing processes. So, you know, syncing or integrating with their processes, and that that's obviously that's often um, the more important part. Uh, and certainly the harder part than worrying about the technology integration. We've, you know, we've built a technology that's effectively based on three pillars of information, identity, time, and value. And that that is constant, as you can imagine, sort of around the world. So, and we've minimized the number of fields of data to make it as frictionless as possible for organizations to sign up and for us to get the data that we need to, to, to um, you know, provide the service and a great service to the to workers. Because we want to make it easy. We want to be able to get as many people as possible on it. But ultimately, we want to try and get the information as early as possible to give the, the users the best uh, experience given the, the uh, 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 and also, you know, make it give as few reasons as possible why a company wouldn't put it in. You know, we want to make this the ultimate no-brainer. Why wouldn't you do this? Uh, and to do that, it's got to work with people's existing systems. You know, understandably, organizations are very worried about um, disrupting anything to do with payroll. So our, our process and our, our, our model, how it works, syncs you know, seamlessly with payroll. We, we don't take over organizations' payroll. Uh, they remain con- in control of that. And that's a really big, important thing. And it helps companies feel, feel more comfortable uh, with, with Hasty. And um, you know, that, that's key. But it's all about making it easy. It's all about fitting with existing people and processes and giving them security and confidence in what we're doing. And the technology then sits on top of that to enable that rather than, um, you know, forcing people into new processes. Uh, James, you, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, how, you, you know, you, you guys are out there to put payday lenders to bed. Um, but you know, I think that is, that is the, the criticism I see online in some places when you look up earned wage access is that it's likened to payday lending and that that perhaps people, I mean, this is by no means my argument, but people should be, uh, can't be trusted with giving uh, sections of their wages before the end of the month. Um, But how important is financial education and proper control alongside alongside offering services like uh, earned wage access? But also, I mean, do you agree with that statement? Do you think that it, do you think it's it's bunkum? I think there's two two really important points you make there. Um, one is the importance of financial education and control, uh, and the other is um, a lack of understanding awareness of what actually earned wage access is. Uh, now, we provide a full suite of financial education and financial management tools because the key here is to enable people to have greater financial control and make better financial decisions. And to do that, they the more financially educated and informed they are of both you know more broadly financial education but also specifically around their own financial position the better decisions they're going to make uh, and we're massively incentivized to do so because the better their understanding of their product and their situation the more likely they are to get the most benefit from what we're doing and you know value us value us more so we layer that on and you know, as part of the employers, the organization's responsibility, corporate responsibility there is to try and, you know, create an environment and provide the tools for their um, 
workforce to upskill themselves financially and to you know to make those better decisions and to make their money go further so that that is a big key part of it the the other part of it is this lightning to, to payday loans it, it's it frustrates me a little bit um and i think is this this sort of understanding it was only 61 years ago that was a change of act in parliament that enabled companies to pay their staff monthly um and into a bank account before that it had to be weekly or more frequently and as human beings, we, we don't operate on monthly cycles. You know, on day one of the month, you've earned that pay. On day two of the month, you've earned day two's pay. It's just the system and man that says you're not going to receive that money that you've already earned that's rightfully yours until the end of the month. You know, the, the workforce is, is, is the single biggest lender to businesses. In, in the UK, SMEs are effectively being lent money by their workforce. You know, the workforce, employees are providing about 35 billion pounds of credit to uh, their employers every month. Now, that compares to about 9 billion of overdrafts. You know, this is a huge thing, but people aren't really thinking of it that way. You know, it is their money when they've earned it. It's not their money at the end of, at the, end of the month. And no one would ever question if a company decides, actually, we're going to pay people weekly rather than pay people monthly. It doesn't mean that people can't manage their money because they're being paid weekly. Actually, it's just the choice of the employer. So there is this sort of education and a rethinking about what this is. Um, what, in a world where we control nearly every second of our lives via our smartphone, why should people be forced to wait to the end of the month to access the money that's already theirs all the time being forced into high cost credit because of the demands of society and the financial demands are being put on people now. So that th there's a rethinking of this, uh, 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 of that ownership of, of earnings, of accrued earnings that, that needs to be done. And that's the big education play and awareness play that we've been working on for the last few years. I think we'll, we'll just shift uh, straight on to the fintech jail. Um, so uh, hope you've got a, I hope you've got a, you've got a buzzword ready, James. I, I have. Um, it's more of a category than a buzzword. Uh, we've spoken about it already in this podcast. But um, the fintech jail. I want to. I want to send uh, payday lenders uh, to jail for life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, that's probably. Uh, I, I, I don't know if I really want to attempt to argue against that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I, it, I'll ask a question instead. Do you think that there are there is a risk that there is something? There are products available in the fintech industry right now uh, that are not necessarily you know payday lenders, but sort of shadow payday lenders. They offer the, the similar. The similar uh, services without much of the financial education. Yeah, I, absolutely, and I think this is this is the key. And you know, we were we were involved in the Woolard review, and they're looking into sort of uh, buy now pay later in particular, and um, our industry as well. And the the problem is that there's so many different options that technology's made it so many um, different products more accessible. And lots of people don't really understand what they're signing up to. In, in some experiences that we were talking about, it's it's actually easier for people to buy it on credit than actually pay for it, even if they want to pay for it on cash. The, the, the UX is such that the incentives don't seem to be aligned around the user. And for me, the key is to put something that's sustainable 
um, in place that is fair, that provides the right level of information to users, that provides the right level of friction to users, but gives them the ability to you know, really genuinely have the information to control and manage their finances. You know, a lot of this financial freedom and financial health comes through financial control. And all of these sort of, there are a number of products out there that I think take away from people's financial control. So, you know, that, that is for me, the key. And, and, just because as I've mentioned, you know, killing the payday lenders, which is something we all want to do. Yeah. You know, maybe not even life in jail. Let's, let's go straight to the death chamber. Um, but you know, the liquidity problem is still there um, and people have a right to be able to manage their finances, to, to be able to access their earnings so that they aren't forced into high cost credit or any of these other pay rate, you know, predatory lenders and whatever comes up as the next thing. They need to be given control of their finances so that they can avoid that, but still benefit from, you know, still, still have the opportunity to receive liquidity. Cash is king. Yeah, I think you make some really good points, James. And and if you look at some of the big buy now, pay later companies, obviously Klarna is the one that everyone kind of goes to. Um, they've got differing offerings. So like they've got interest bearing offerings and then they've got interest free offerings. Um, so it does seem that some of these companies, they're not black and white sort of shadow payday loan figures. They, they do have products that are trying to sort of do better for the customer. But like you said, it's interesting to notice the UX differences between these products and how perhaps some of these companies are still putting measures in place to try and still guide people towards the more payday loan akin products um, than to perhaps, yeah, ones that would be better for them or better suited to them. Um, and that's, a re- I mean, I never even thought of it from that that point of view, but I guess that's a, that's the point of view that people like yourself in the industry can have because you understand the sort of technology side of it. Um, so I think that that would be really interesting to see how companies evolve that kind of span both camps. They kind of still have products that perhaps hark a little bit back to the payday days, but then they're also got more forward looking products, but ultimately, you know, these companies like kind of have to make money on something. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they evolve and whether they do get rid of um, sort of the interest bearing uh, products or sort of really minimize them um, and replace them with other products. Uh, and the key is, look, there's some great products out there. I'm not, I'm not bashing, you know, a category at all. Um, it, it, used in the right way, there are some great tools and, and they can be very effective. And, and that's really important. Again, that's why financial education is so important and visibility so that people can make the right decisions and make better decisions. And as with anything, the, you know, chances are there'll be a portfolio of different products that best suit an individual. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people buy, people are going to get mortgages and buy a house and there's an asset there and the house is hopefully going to go up in value and, and everything else. And it's okay to, to, to buy uh, a product on, on uh, buy now, pay later in a certain situation. Um, but it's not right for everything. And there isn't a one size fits all. And I think the key here is to provide the right range of, uh, products pr- combined with the right awareness so that people can make better decisions that suit their particular set of circumstances and have the visibility to to make those and not be pressured into you know the wrong choices right. well i mean i think it's important i want to state right at the top for anyone listening that the fintech futures fintech jail is about rehabilitation and not punishment um so we we don't have a death, a death chamber um uh although saying that we have put things away for life i think uh in in previous episodes so perhaps um 
we can give we can, we can give payday, payday lenders or shadow payday lenders, which is I think I came up with only you know I I, I quite like it actually, uh, if I suit my own horn. Um, we can we can put them away on let's say 20, 25 years with a chance of parole, depending on if they sort if they uh, if they get give themselves some financial education. Um, but uh, yeah, well I th- I think that's. Uh, that's all we have time for for, the, the, for this episode. We've run out of time, so uh, thanks to, to Ruby and James for joining me. But before before we we do sign off, just give everyone a chance to to plug uh, socials, websites, reports, products, LinkedIn profiles, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, James, uh, what, what have you got to plug? Uh, thanks, Alex Ruby. Great to be involved in this. Really good. To, really enjoyed the session. Um, I, obviously, you know we're here. We'd love to people to sign up to Hasty to, you know, support their workforces and for employees to get better, better financial control. And ultimately, we're here to, to drive productivity of, um, of individuals and their organizations through, through financial health and uh, earned wage access. So, yeah, go to our website, uh, hasty.com to find out more. Excellent. Uh, Ruby, what about you? Yeah, sure. As as usual, um, yeah, I'll, I'll guess I'll plug my Twitter, uh, Ruby Hinchliffe. Um, it's just my name, my full name. Um, not not too exciting, um, but yeah, that's that's where I post most of my uh, news and analysis and features and interviews. Um, and also, just I guess a call out. Uh, feel free to reach out if you've got some cool ideas or some cool kind of projects or you know always always got open ears um i feel like i'm I'm an approachable journalist uh for the most part so yeah please do reach out if you've got some cool things uh in the pipeline cool uh and as for me you can find me on twitter at ad hamilton 91 i'm approaching that milestone of 2000 followers so it'd be great to hit that just for just once I'm still searching for my blue tick, though. Uh, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn uh, by searching my name. Uh, do also check out a report we've recently published on the FinTech Futures website, authored by me, uh, about how AI and machine learning can impact content management in financial services and how firms can reorganize the way they operate their content to uh, deploy new features, which can be enabled via automation. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at at Fintech Futures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our logo, those two Fs in the lovely purple. Uh, If you liked this podcast and our other episodes, then please feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, uh, your favorite podcasting service of choice. Uh, We also really appreciate it if you could help others find us by uh, talking to them, writing a review, or, or recommending us to anyone you find on the street or at any virtual conference. Uh, thanks very much for all of your, your support. We will see you soon for another episode of FinTech Futures. But, uh, fin- <laughs> FinTech Futures? Fin- what the FinTech? But until then, goodbye. Goodbye.